0: Gentlemen,
1: can I please have your attention? Daniel Jiggins! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of The Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to get your antidote to the crazy. Um, So, uh, today's a little different. I'm actually recording this after I've had the conversation uh, I had, um, uh, my friend, Dan Crenshaw, congressman from Texas on, uh, to talk and he wanted to have me on his podcast and he wanted to be on my podcast. And so it became this, you know, chocolate in the peanut butter, peanut butter cup kind of thing where, uh, we're going to essentially cross post on both sides. Um, and so, uh, I, I apologize to the I mean, I guess the Crenshaw listeners of his podcast will not be hearing me say this part, um, but my sense is, is that some of the listeners on that side may not have enjoyed it as much. Um, regardless, I thought it was a great conversation. It was very interesting to hear his perspective. We, talk, we covered a lot of ground, um, and um, I'll have some thoughts about the ground we covered uh, at the end of this, which I will also record after the conversation, um, and uh, enjoy. Let me know what you think. Okay, so we're recording. Um, this is a little weird of a hybrid thing where technically, since uh, Dan is going to... I can call you Dan on this for these purposes, right? That's not too, in, yes. too informal. Call me, uh, call me take tight. So Dan him. is going to be running this, <laughs> cr- cross-posting this at his podcast, which he hosts, and I'm running it at The Remnant, which I host. So I just, we flipped a coin. I, I'm talking first, but take that as you will. And uh we had talked about him coming on to address my continuing complaints and indictments about Congress. And he has he has he has thoughts, he has notes, as they say in Hollywood, on all of this. So um thanks for doing this, Dan. And I'll just start with a my my sort of standard indictment of Congress, which is that it's not doing its freaking job. And I don't mean that just in terms of not producing the legislation I like. I mean that it's supposed to be the place where where politics is adjudicated where people of different points of view from different interests and different perspectives come together to hammer out and debate the important issues of the day in ways that educate the public and educate the members of congress about the different perspectives involved um Congress is supposed to be where politics happens. And when Congress isn't the place where politics happens, it makes politics spill out into the rest of the culture. And one of my great indictments of Congress is that it is, I mean, let me, there are all sorts of things you can do. You can talk about how, uh, I think the last time you actually had 14 Appropriations, the 14 appropriations bill done the right way was, I think, 1997. The last time a budget was done through regular order, I think, was 2000. Power under both parties has accrued to leadership. Um, both, it seems like someone had a secret meeting somewhere and said Woodrow Wilson was right and we should have party government where you elect a party to do stuff um, and uh, and members of Congress should just act on what their party what, what, what the party that was elected was expected to do without actually negotiating and legislating and working across the aisle. And, um, and lastly, I'll just say just to start it off is that I think the project for conservatism going into the 21st century, we did a pretty good job, even though there's a lot of backpedaling these days on, uh, making, making the argument for originalism in terms of the constitution or textualism or, or, basically advancing the idea that what a conservative believes is that the Constitution actually means something. And that was an important victory for the right over the last quarter century or third of a century. And the new project needs to be Congress actually doing its job and not outsourcing its functions to the legislative and judicial branches, as well as to the sort of permanent bureaucracy. Have at it. What do you think of all that?
0: (laughs) Um, There's a lot to unpack. I'm just going to I'm just going to start with my first reaction to the to the first thing you said, and, and what what struck me as what you were saying was the the question of whether when a representative is a trustee or a delegate, mm-hmm. um, because what you talked about was you know where politics happens, and and you 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 brought out this idea that what should happen in Congress is honest debate where people might actually be persuaded. Right. Now, now, of course, that's not how it works, not even a little bit, um, but th- it is impossible for me to persuade a Democrat. Now, on some issues, yes, like you, you can you can get them somewhere, but these are usually fringier issues, and not nearly as controversial on, on the really big stuff. You can't be persuaded now. now but, but then again, is is that really so unexpected? Um, because it's not like there's not thousands of bipartisan pieces of legislation there. There, there certainly are. Um, think deals do get hammered out to, to some extent, but, but, but I think what you're getting at we're, we're, uh, the question of where the politics happens, I, I do think that's interesting. And I think it does get to this question of, look, is, is somebody, when I say the trustee or delegate dichotomy, I mean, are you elected because of your judgments? Are you elected Do people elect you to, to judge legislation for them and to make decisions on their behalf? Or do they elect you to simply, you know, put your finger up to the wind to see which way it's blowing, or, or just take a take a poll and say, "Look, I fifty one percent of my district wants this, therefore I do this." Like you're an algorithm, you're a robot,
1: mm-hmm. you're like a and, proxy and a shareholder thing, right? right. You're, just, you're voting for how you were told to vote, right?
0: Right. You're a delegate, um, and, and, you know, a trustee. You're tr- you're entrusted to to make decisions, and the public kind of wants you to be both. Uh, generally speaking, it sort of depends on the issue. You know, on on some issues, I I um I have a hard time making an argument for like term limits. But am I in favor of them? Yes, because people want me to be. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and <laughs> but but I but I have a really hard time making an honest argument in favor of them, I, or, or or at least or at least making an honest statement that that they're going to help you and and they're going to solve the problems you think should be solved. All right. I I don't know that they'll do a ton of damage if you have term limits and I, you know, frankly, I don't really care. Um, but well, I, I care if they would do damage. I mean, I, I, I'm just, I, I'm a little agnostic on, on, on which, which way to go on term limits, but people want them. So I'm in favor of them, but I always say, yes, I'm in favor of them because you want them. However, um, here's a lot of cons and problems associated with term limits that maybe you're not seeing and frankly mm-hmm. when i'm done with this list you know are you sure you're still in favor of them and people are like well i like you but you know pelosi she's just been there forever and i'm like yeah do you really think that some reasonable new democrat would replace pelosi if she was term limited out <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> San Francisco.
0: yeah, yeah no, of course not so um you're right I, I think that's where politics is supposed to happen it doesn't how do you change that i don't know i mean you know some of these are are, are more cultural or are, are, are more attached to the american culture than they are to the the institution of congress itself um and uh and i think that's a per- perhaps an outgrowth of the, the increased use of social media the, the ability of the public to really have much more of a voice frankly than it ever did before um although although if you ask somebody they would say the opposite which, right. which is interesting and, and so you know, maybe, maybe I'm kind of rambling here as I, as I think through what you said. So I, so I agree with it, but I I would offer that extra analysis.
1: Okay. So let me, let me, let me change gears a little bit here. When you talk about persuasion, which I'm a big believer in, and I think conservatives outside of Congress have really lost track of the idea of persuading people who disagree with them. And there's just an, so much of right wing media these days is just, is fan service, right? It's just telling people what they already agree with. But we can put that aside for a second. I like persuasion. Persuasion's good. Persuasion's important. Persuasion is grounded in the in the Enlightenment and in all all sorts of principles that we hope both hold dear. But I don't mean that like on the floor of the house. It should be the School of Athens, where some where you rain reason down upon your political opponents and through the force. Of pure intellect and logic, you'd make them change their positions. My point is, is that that the by making committees weaker, by getting rid of earmarks, by getting rid of smoke filled rooms, by uh, by by virtue of the fact that we are the only advanced democracy in the world where the parties cannot choose their own nominees where you have to do, put it up for a primary vote, which makes it very difficult to get people to make difficult votes if they know they're going to be primaried. And I think a lot of the problems mm-hmm. that we have in Congress have more to do with the primary system than they do with uh, you know a lot of other things that usually get blamed. Um, when you get rid of all of the stuff that was up until the 1970s with the reforms of Congress understood as politics, of wheelie dealing and of ex of, of trading votes and trading favors and using things like earmarks and committee assignments to 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 you know wrench compromise uh you lost the ability for Congress to effectively govern in a lot of ways and um, I was part of the anti-earmark crowd 10 years ago i was, it was a big thing at national review it was a big thing in American politics I was a tea party guy back then and um, I still don't like wasteful spending but I would take, Earmarks any day at this point. If I could bribe every member of Congress with a bridge or a rec center or a swimming pool in exchange for entitlement reform, and we would save pennies on (laughs) the dollar doing that. And my point is that the committee system is how you actually we gain consensus in this country. How you gain how how you let let politics actually do the things politics is meant to do. If you actually give Congress the power to do it, and that's, I think that's been lost. Does that make sense with you?
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that does make sense. I, I, well, I think there's actually two two aspects to this. One is is what you what you noted, maybe without realizing it, but but the problem that I see oftentimes is the the, the lack of desire for persuasion. And so, you know, I often say like, there's there, there's two types of members. Um, in congress I, i'm really looking at my own side on this and i, I suppose this applies to the democrats too but I, I i care less about that i care more about my own side and there's two types there's there's entertainers the performers and mm. there's well, let's call them statesmen you know pe- people who are mm. who are pretty serious they're not exactly charismatic but they're serious uh they they know things about tax policy right there and, and these are generally the people Show that end up versus um,
1: work horses, right
0: yeah yeah I, for some reason, I don't like that terminology. I, I think because somebody <laughs> called me a show horse once and I'm just really pissed off about it, so I never use it, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, never again, I, yeah, don't ever say that again, Jonah, <laughs> 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 um, the, but, but yeah, it's the performers versus the policymakers and, um, you know, generally our, uh, committee chairman or subcommittee chairman are, are, uh, you know, fall into the the category of uh, pe- people who actually know issues and, um, and, and, and care to look at them. Um, But it's increasingly popular to try to be a performer now. Now, look, and a lot of people fall on straddle both sides of this. I, for one, straddle both sides of this. Uh, I would like to think that uh, I have plenty of substance and can think through the philosophy of conservatism. And I know the issues pretty well and uh, especially the ones that I focus on. Uh, But I also understand that what the public wants is reality TV uh and they need to be spoken to on social media you you need to deliver them content content in in the modern form uh so 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 so, yeah i mean i i mean i did a campaign ad where i jumped out of an airplane and landed like iron man obviously i understand the nature of performance you know so so i'm not i'm not saying that's a bad thing but i'm saying it's definitely a bad thing when when the goal of it is not to persuade but to rile up only your base that's where we get screwed up. That's where you lack the persuasion. I wrote an op-ed for Daily Wire. um, I did a whole podcast explaining it, too, on um, the difference between fighting and performing. Because everybody goes up there and they're like, I want to fight. I'm going to stand up and fight. Okay, well, what does that end up meaning? It usually just means performing for you. It would be great if what it really meant was to win. Because fighting right. should always end up in winning. If, if 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 the outcome of the fight that you want to put yourself in isn't winning, then I don't know what the hell you're doing. And um, you know, I could run into a hail of gunfire as a Navy SEAL, and it would look cool, right? It would make a really good movie scene, but I'd also be dead, mm. and um, that's not good. So fighting in politics means persuasion and you and expanding your base. So fighting smartly, and and and, and I think it's reasonable to say that the the conservative base was was increasingly frustrated with the Republican Party for not quote unquote fighting. And so it's up to us as politicians to kind of figure out what they mean by that. Do you want me performing for you? Do you want me to do Marjorie Taylor Greene for you? What has she accomplished? Nothing. What have I accomplished? I have brought on quite a, I get, because I get these kind of messages all the time. You're the only mm-hmm. Republican I can actually, like, I, I I don't have to be embarrassed to say it. And that means a lot to me. That mm-hmm. means we're persuading people. That means we're bringing people into the fold. That's really, really important. Okay, so that's one aspect of it. Um, and, and, but then, the, but the, I think that the second thing that you you were talking about, which is really true, and this was first brought to my attention before I was even in politics, and I didn't even, you know, I had no inclination to run for Congress, and I was at the Kennedy School. And one of our professors, um, I assume that he's probably finished this work by now, but um, he, he's. He was studying why that divisiveness happens, you know, why, you know, that YouTube video where you see all the red and blue dots and, uh, over time, and there's a time-lapse and you're and, and the red dots, uh, mean, a m- red member of Congress, blue dots mean a Democrat yeah. member of Congress. And they're, they're all mixed together in the seventies and eighties and nineties. And then they start to like drift apart like this. And they're like, this is what's happened. This is supposed to indicate that there's increased divisiveness in, in Congress. Um, I, now, now it, it's an interesting take on it, I, because I, I, I think how the only way to measure that is is voting records. And so the question is, why do your voting records diverge? Um, is it because you have pol- legitimate policy differences as, as the policy platforms changed? I think on the left, they certainly have. I think that's, that's it, it very easy to prove. I'm not so sure that's the case on the right. But it's certainly the case that we're less likely to talk to each other. And, and that gets... That gets to what you were talking about. Where, where's the smoke-filled rooms? Um, earmarks are no longer an option, although that's now kind of changing. Uh, right. The Democrats are going to bring back earmarks. And um, there's, a, there's a very robust conversation on, 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 in the Republican side about this and, and what to do about it. And, and we can get into more detail on that if you'd like. Um, but, but yeah, I do agree. There's no there's these mechanisms for debate just don't exist. And, and, and what my professor had found was it has nothing to do with something like gerrymandering. Everybody points to something like gerrymandering is that's the reason that we get crazies in, in Congress, and and um, a lengthy analysis of this shows that it's just not really the case because you see the same phenomenon happening in the Senate, for instance, and there's no gerrymandering in the Senate. So, you know, and also, again, the shape of a this is a whole other conversation with mm. gerrymandering and people's frustrations with it. Um and what it really means, what it doesn't mean. But it appears more that what they what they found was that the the origin the, the origin of of this divisiveness was um, committee votes in committee hearings being public. You used to mm-hmm. be able to take votes, and I can't remember what year this changed, but it was a while ago. Um, wh- that's that's the moment when you started seeing this this great fear of being primaried. And and I know one of your solutions is just end primaries.
1: <laughs> um, or I'd allow like to committees more. to hold on, you know, non-transparent meetings. I'm, I'm fine with both. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What, you like know, I, I think C-SPAN the in Congress yeah. was a huge mistake and I love C-SPAN. I love Brian Lamb, but I think it was a huge mistake.
0: It's like four of you who watch it. And we appreciate every one of you.
1: Well, I, I mean, letting <laughs> cameras into everything, I but mean, I mean, I'll give you an example. I mean, I just, I'm curious about your take on this. I remember when it was Trump was still president, Bill Barr came to testify. Democrats were convinced that he was, you know, the, satan incarnate republicans were convinced that he was uh being crucified cruelly and horribly he comes to testify there were legitimate questions for this guy to answer you know as someone who defended Barr for a long time then became critical and then uh but wanted to know the facts i can't remember what the exact details were um at the time some of it had to do i guess with the, the 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 violence outside the white house not January 6th, but like back, you know, with the black lives matter Mm -hmm. stuff. But anyway, there were like legitimate factual questions that needed to be asked and needed to be answered. And instead we saw, um, one politician after another on each side use up all of the time to craft videos that they could send home to their constituency showing how they were on the righteous side of the issue, given whether they had a D or an R on their name. And not even the I mean, like the Republicans wouldn't even let Barr answer questions. And instead, it was one speech that was almost cut and paste, identical to the next person after, again and again and again, because even though all of these things had already be, been said, not everybody had said it. And they wanted to be able to have their clip that they could send home to Congress. I mean, send home to their district showing them saying it get the freaking cameras out of there. You can still have print. Re- I and mean, if you need to have print reporters in there, fine. But you know, when you say only four people watch the C-SPAN stuff, you know who the four people are. They're lobbyists, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the idea that like shining a light on this stuff would get special interests out. That didn't work. What happened yeah. was you shine a light on it. You help it into everyone's home and people stop. Don't pay attention to it, except for the people who have a vested interest in it on K street. And you can't have real negotiations in public. I mean, this country was founded in a smoke-filled room that was barred from the public. You know, the Constitutional Convention it did not have scribes in there taking down transcripts to be published in the newspaper every day because you can't do negotiation with that kind of transparency. And this sort of gets to my larger point, which is that I think in a, for a democracy to flaw, for a democracy to thrive. Its key. many of its key institutions need to be, to one degree or another, undemocratic in order to be able to have the kind of stickiness and power that allows them to function in the way that they were intended.
0: Yeah. So, sounds like such an elitist, Jonah. I don't know. Um, I, <laughs> I don't have to run for
1: office, so I don't shrink from the yeah. charge of elitist. <laughs> yeah. It's... Um... <sighs>
0: It's, at a bar hearing, you're absolutely right. A guy never answered anything. These are often what these hearings are like. Um, it's I would say it's a mix. Um, in a high profile hearing like that, that was extremely frustrating. I, I think the Democrats made total fools of themselves, never letting him speak. I mean, they, and th- this happens a lot. As the, a question is asked, and it's usually a compound question, and then the, right. <laughs> the witness is like, "Okay, well, actually, we'll I mean, here," and, and they start explaining it. To the member, yes or no. Yes or no? This happened in um, it really in a, a kind of hilarious way during the big tech hearings we had at the on the E. N. C. Committee a couple of weeks ago. Now, um, in defense of us members of Congress, it's really hard to ask any substantive question in five minutes. It's mm-hmm. uh, and oftentimes, if I really care about this issue, so before the big tech hearing, I was I had long conversations with Facebook, Google, and um, and twitter on the on uh, just separately like that that's just what we did leading up to the hearing just so i could ask the real questions that i wanted to ask um because these are very very complicated issues regarding section 230 and i want to let them know where i'm at so it wasn't with the witnesses I was i didn't have the ceos on the phone but i had their people and so oftentimes when we really care about something like that's what happens um Mm -hmm. we, we there's lots of separate meetings going on so it's so it's so the so yes, the hearings have become purely for show. I mean, it's 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 hard to argue otherwise. Not all the time. Every once in a while, if if it's not a really highlighted partisan issue, it's you're actually fact finding, and, and there are hearings mm-hmm. like that. Um, but it's not the bar hearing. It's not the big tech hearings. These are these are purely for show. And what I was getting at was so Jack Dorsey in particular on this in this particular case um, kept getting asked compound questions complicated questions questions that require him to explain things and every single time the democrats would say no just answer yes or no wait come on can't, <laughs> can't you just answer yes or no why is this so hard for you they were just mean it, it's it, we can talk forever about the the interesting bipartisan outrage against big tech and and yeah. how it really shouldn't be bipartisan it's it's where we're fundamentally come out from different angles but uh they kept doing that and so dorsey starts tweeting And he tweets out a poll that simply says, choose yes or no. (laughs) (laughs) He was just trolling the Democrats the whole time, which I thought was great. Um, But yeah, I mean, to your point, and and look, I I think the other problem is, is, you know, we we can find, we can befriend people in Congress and we do um, from the other side of the aisle. And that's good to bounce ideas off of each other. It's good to say, look, Find an honest Democrat and say, how do you guys react to this? And how would you react to this? And then they sort of give us their incentives. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't change much in, when it comes to the public sphere, because the same, um, the same incentives remain the same, even if you mm-hmm. discuss it behind closed doors in a very honest way. Uh, the incentives on the outside still remain the same. And, and those incentives are structured around primaries. They're, they're structured around generals. Or structured around, you know, how, how badly you're going to take it on the chin from your activist groups. And the left, I think we have pretty mean, right? I, I don't know, there might be the same, honestly, but but but, the, the, but both sides deal with that, right? They're, they're Puritan wings that are always looking for traitors in their midst. Um, I'm not as concerned about it on the Democrat side, frankly, I like watching it. On our side, I'm very concerned about it. And I think it's unbelievably detrimental, um you know I've, I've never called anybody a rhino or establishment mm-hmm. i'm not sure what these terms mean to people it's it's usually just it, it's it's it, it's usually something said when when you want to bypass the debate right just like the left mm-hmm. calls a conservative racist every time they don't want to actually have a debate um we do the same thing we just use the words rhino and uh establishment and it's it's that's that's probably our greatest threat you know So it's like we can quibble about what to do about the institution itself. I'm not so sure that there's any reforms that could happen at the institutional level in Congress that would change a damn thing, Mm -hmm. because what we're really talking about are cultural problems. I'll leave it there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, you in many ways, uh, Jonathan Rauch has this great chapter in this book. uh, um, uh, Congress is broken or broken Congress. I can't remember what the title was where he basically, he makes the argument that most of the problems with Congress have to do with problems outside of Congress. And, and I'm totally open to that. I, I think that's right in some broad macro cosmic sense. But at the same time, you can fix institutions to be part of the solution rather than to reflect the problem. And right now, I mean, look, I mean, we'll put the last two weeks of allegations about Matt Gates aside. Uh, I think Matt Gates symbolizes almost everything I've been talking about with the problems with uh, with Congress. You know, he, he talks about how, you know, it's better to be on TV because that's where you make news. And if you're not making news, you're not governing, which to me is a complete inversion of what you're sent. You're not sent to Congress to have a better platform to go on Tucker's show. You're sent to Congress to accomplish things and the sort of hot takey own the libs kind of culture, um, is which is, has its by definitely has its own versions on the left. I mean, AOC has mastered a lot of this stuff too. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's part of the attention economy that if you're talked about, that's more valuable than if you're actually doing something. And, um, and I, I think at the end of the day, you know, the, the Congress is supreme. The Congress, you know, is the first branch of government. It's the only branch of government that can fire members of the other branches of government. It has the power to declare war It has the power to raise taxes, which is kind of important. It, has, it creates the laws. It creates all the courts except for the Supreme court. Um, and it is by far the weakest institution in terms of policymaking in this country. And I think that is one of the reasons why a lot of people feel like, like elite, you mentioned elites, how unseen powerful forces are making decisions that they have no control of because the place where they're supposed to make their voices heard is Congress and Congress. And I'm not, this is not a criticism of you. This is a criticism going back a hundred years has steadily outsourced its responsibilities to the point where it is now. Just a platform, not just a platform. There are good people there. You're one of them. But it is, it is a place where performance is valued more. I mean, you have these, I mean, I have these stats, I can call them up. The number of, of congressmen who were coming to Washington who don't even have legislative operations, they just have comms operations and social media operations. The number of people who have social media in their title has skyrocketed. And I get that part of that comes with campaigning, but part of that's a problem, too. I mean, social media, I think everybody can agree, has downsides to it, and uh, I just don't see a lot of sense that, as an institution, Congress is pushing back on that. You are free to answer that, or if you feel like I'm just filibustering, that's fine, too. If you want (laughs) to use this, we're about halfway in. If you want to turn the tables on me and say, oh, yeah, Goldberg, what the hell are you talking about? How do you explain this? That's fine, too. I'm turning the microphone around a little bit to you, so you can um ask well any questions that you might have
0: well I, I mean I kind of hit this before right it's um, the, the, again there's two types of people performers and, and policymakers and then there's that spectrum in, in between if you're, if you're too far to the one side you're not that effective and I and I, I, I try to be right in the middle mm-hmm. um, because I do see I do understand the value of of the performance and that that high social media following that performative capability, the fact that people want to see you on TV and invite you to their events because they've seen you on TV, that gives me power legislatively. That gives me the, that, that means that Democrat, as long as I don't act like a total jerk Democrats with good bipartisan legislation, I'm on the top of their list. Right. So they come to me about this, so that this, this helps me get on the energy and commerce committee where I am hitting the, 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 the subjects and and the issues that I care about most and that are important for my district, which is energy, environment, and healthcare. are these are Mm -hmm. the subcommittees um, that I, that I deal with. So, you know, there's that, that balance is important and it's just important to call people out when they're out of balance, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and to, and, and if, you know, you always talk about how our, our parties aren't strong enough. The, The problem is that we have no elites. The problem is that we have no establishment and I fully agree with that. I tell people that all the time and maybe I stole it from you, but now I'm just going to say it's my original thought. Um, (laughs) And and I'm like, you know, this is going to shock you guys. And I say this at events a lot, but there is no establishment. If there was, then there would be certain members that never would have made it because we have plenty of members that just have no clue what they're talking about. Look, I mean, (laughs) Gates at least has like, he, he really, he's at least the smarter guy. Like he at least knows generally, he can at least go on MSNBC and debate. He's done it many times. There's a lot of performative members in Congress who would get torn apart doing that because yeah. the only depth they have are slogans. Mm-hmm. That's, if there's no, if there's something that irks me more than anything on our side, it's the sloganeering. It's mm-hmm. the, it's the empty, shallow sloganeering, you know, and fine. Slogans are useful at, for shorthand. But you need to be. If you can't explain what you mean by that when some when you're pressed on it, and if you just fall apart in the moment, then you are useless to our movement, and you should leave. You should just get out. Just go be an activist. Go hand out flyers. That's about all you're good for. And I mean that. I'm I'm, I'm kind of being mean about it, but it's true. No, I think you're right. And then the members we have who are like that, they need to they they need to catch up quickly. I'm, I'm very upset about it, to, to be honest, because it really hurts our cause. It's very easy to put them up. On, it's like, a, I mean, there are AOC, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 AOC is a it, there's a reason that, you know, if you haven't noticed over the last year or two, that the the, the left wing media almost never reports on AOC. They, mm-hmm. they, they took the rug out from under her a long time ago. It doesn't mean she's not influential anymore, but, but that's that's mostly because of her social media following. Um And, uh, but, but I think it was very deliberate by the Democrat establishment. If there's an establishment, it appears to exist more on the Democrat side than it does on the Republican side. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm not a fly on the wall behind the scenes there and I don't analyze it as much, but it's, uh,
1: Fox's coverage of AOC (laughs) is, 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 is rich. And part of that is just the trying to start a fight thing, which is part of journalism. Um, but, you know, MSNBC pays a lot of attention to, I don't know, uh, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I think it was very smart to get her off of committees because it just reduces the number of opportunities where they actually have a legitimate excuse to cover her. <laughs> um, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, they have although, to <laughs> although that gave,
0: uh, Unfortunately, that gave her plenty of time to keep calling for these motions to adjourn, which has just been uh, annoying. And uh, you know what I point out there? I was like, everybody's like, that's fighting. This is a good example of like performance versus fighting. I'm like, everybody's like, that's what it means to fight. She's actually fighting. What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm doing real things. I mean, actual real things. We're really working on issues. What she's doing is is swamp politics. So that's, that's the trick, right? She's actually mm-hmm. using swamp tactics, procedural swamp tactics that nobody outside of Washington cares about to try and make some kind of grand point. That does nothing in the end. That has that has a that has zero good outcomes. That's that's a problem. We get really wrapped up in those things because they're easy. Real fighting is hard.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I think that, I mean it's funny. I mean I'm curious what you think about this, and then I, I, I promise we can get off of Congress's dysfunction.
0: Um, I don't care. On, I, I'm having on,
1: fun. On one of our on our sister podcast here at the Dispatch, uh, um, Steve Hayes and Sarah Isger inter- interviewed. Um, Uh, Mick Mulvaney. And it was an interesting um conversation. Uh Mulvaney's very good at making the best case for the things that he needs to make the best case for. Um, Mm -hmm. but he tells an interesting story, which I don't I don't mean this is necessarily as a criticism of Mulvaney, even though I did think it was pretty slippery. Um, but it's sort of emblematic of one of the problems of where we are. So Steve was asking, or maybe it was Sarah. Was that they were they were asking him about how did the House Freedom Caucus, which came in as the most aggressive deficit and spending hawks in the Republican Party, they were Tea Party guys, they were screaming bloody murder about getting budgets in line and not spending beyond our means and all these kinds of things. How did they become the 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 shock troops, the political shock troops for Donald Trump, who does not care a wit, did not care a wit about spending or deficits yeah. and um and he tells this sto- so mick tells the story where he says well it's interesting i was talking to the president and the president thought that he was going to have a problem with the freedom caucus because they were such you know deficit hawks and mulvaney tell says that he told the president no mr president don't worry about it because at the end of the day they're going to be your biggest supporters because their their, their first instinct is to be anti-establishment and you're (laughs) anti-establishment right and so it's an interesting explanation i think it's you know one of the things i really try to emphasize particularly with my own kid is there's a huge difference between an explanation and an excuse like you can tell me why you did something but that doesn't necessarily excuse that you did it right and regardless i remember back when boehner was speaker i would give speeches around the country to conservative groups and they would tell me about how the establishment is so liberal establishments full of sellouts. The establishment is full of rhinos. We need to purge the Rockefeller Republicans from the Republican party. And I'd be like, who are these Rockefeller Republicans? They went out in the Pleistocene era. You know, the, 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 the Boehner, Ryan McConnell leadership, whatever its flaws. And I can have my criticisms. I'm sure you have your criticisms is more conservative in terms of just sort of movement, conservative positions than any previous Republican leadership in the last 75 years. But there's just this, because of this populist thing that just assumes it's sort of like a weird play on the Groucho Marx thing. You don't want to belong to a club that would have you as a member. The second you become part of the establishment, you need to be protested against regardless of what you're trying to accomplish. And the idea that the house freedom caucus would turn on the conservative leadership in the republican party or support trump to the extent that they would abandon the issues that they said were at their core because it was more important to them to be anti-establishment than to actually get things done i think is a pretty damning indictment of the house freedom caucus and i don't mean that as everybody because i actually know people who are in the house freedom caucus who are who are good guys who who don't go along with all that but as a sort of as a matter of optics at the at the macro level, it says something pretty pernicious that people would rather stay rebellious than actually work within the system to get stuff done.
0: Yeah, that's the incentive structure on the right. Look, it's um. I think that's an unbelievably honest answer from Mulvaney. I don't think it was an excuse <laughs> or an explanation. I think it was just blatant honesty. Um, anti-establishment is the buzzword. It will always be the buzzword. Because, look, the left is uh, – these are the two Ps. The, the left is power-hungry. The right is paranoid. And we're always looking for traders in our midst. It's, it's Again, it's one of the most frustrating things that I see. And it, it, it's utterly self-defeating. Um, but there's an incentive structure around that. And be- because we have that sort of deep sense of paranoia that we're always going to be betrayed because our, our media leaders and our pundits and our influencers and our politicians have been telling us that all the time, because it helps them one up. It helps them get a, a, a leg up in, in maybe a primary or, or especially in fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're being victimized by the establishment, this is our own victimhood culture too. This is, this is how I always pointed out how we're copying the left the victimhood culture. Now we do it differently than they do. It's more of an internal struggle, but it does happen. You're victimized by the establishment. you're being lied to, you know they, they don't care about, you don't care about what you care about. And if you say like, well, what do you mean? Like what? Well, th- th- then the argument falls apart because there's actually nothing. But, but this is the buzzwords that are used, and it works very, very, very well. Um, our most victimized members of Congress fundraise the most off of just being victimized. Everybody's picking on me. I'm the one fighting the establishment. Again, d- d- don't ask me what that means because I can't tell you, but I'm doing it. Just trust me. Um, and then right. and, and here's – but here's the worst part of it all. They like losing. I don't know if the Tea Party likes losing, although um, <laughs> some might make that argument, but it's certainly beneficial in many ways because, you know, think of think of your influencer who who basically monetizes. Um, they monetize outrage. You know, they monetize it by by getting extra clicks, by getting extra shares, um, which improve their following. And the only way to do that is to convince people that the truth is found where you're at, because because right. you're anti-establishment. So this, this this buzzword just carries with it so much power, and it's so tempting. And it's especially tempting if people don't have the intellectual capacity to, to do better than that. I mean, you know, because it, what I point out to people is, look, you can be the fighter for people, but also have substance that's persuasive and really makes our case. That's what I try to do. Uh, ben Shapiro is a great example of that. I, you know, I, I think that's a good example of how to do it. You, nobody would accuse this guy of being a rhino sellout, but, I, but, but then again, mm-hmm. they would. Because right. because anybody who ever engages in nuance and I'm always like I'm like, what makes you establishment? It's like maybe somebody who engages in nuance every once in a while instead of sloganeering, because sloganeering is the language that you're supposed to use. And if you don't use it, well, yeah, it's an indication that I can't trust you. And uh, it's 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 a problem. I always make fun of people. I'm like, OK, yeah, guys, get your rhino guns, get them rhino go- guns out and get them hunt, hunt for them rhinos. You know, I just, I just, I just just directly go at it. This we just got to start making fun of it because it's, it's really become comical and clownish in every way. It really is silly.
1: Well, and also, I mean, I mean, like I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on the problems of tribalism and, you know, in, 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 in the, 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 the internal witch hunts on the right, but there's, there's also just a matter of practical politics, right? Like as a, In a two party system, you want to be the majority party to be the majority party means you're going to have more factions in your coalition that disagree with each other than the minority party. Right. I mean, the classic example of this was the FDR coalition, which had communist Jews and urban blacks and Southern segregationists and everybody in between all in one party. And. It always would drive me crazy um, when people would focus all of their attention on how terrible the sort of northeastern squishy rhino Republicans are, and I have profound disagreements with them. You know, I think Arlen Specter was a horrible human being, uh, but you know, like Scott Brown, uh, uh, Susan Collins, these kinds of people. Like the first thing you expect, you have to demand from them, like in the Senate context is that they vote for a Republican for the leader, right? So they vote for the the party to organize, to be the leader um, to the majority party. After that, have some fricking negotiations. I mean, everything else can be a conversation, but if you want to be a majority party, you have to have tolerance for people who have to take votes that will get, you know, yeah. that, so they can get elected. And you could have, if you, if you only want purists pure hardcore rock rib goldwater, right. Republicans voting and ma- running in Massachusetts, then you're just never going to have Republicans from Massachusetts. And it would be better to have power and have internal conversation and dissent than to be smaller <laughs> and pure. And that's why I used to have real problems with like the guys from Wyoming or Montana who you knew were going to get reelected by 10 or 20 or 30 points. Who never swung for the fences and took risks when it was safe for them to do so. But they all the attention was always on these traders on the rhino squishy side, um, who were the majority makers for the Republican Party. I just think it's it's so counterproductive, just as a matter of like balls and strikes, how do you play the game kind of thing. Yeah. I, I
0: fully agree. I'm not sure I can add too much to it. I mean, and what I what I tell people often too is is like, in my district, I have a squishy suburban district. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Donald Trump won my district by one point, and uh, but I won it by fourteen. So there's forty thousand people that voted mostly down ballot Republican, but not for for Donald Trump. Now it, it is a unique election, and Trump's a very unique candidate. And um, but but, but I think it tells us. To, but I'm not squishy either. I I I've never mm-hmm. I never take positions of the left. But but however, people. And, and I'll take this as a compliment. A lot of people in the middle, moderates, independents, be like, well, you're kind of moderate. And I'll say, oh, okay, thanks. So what is it about me that makes me moderate? Because I've never voted that way. And I've never, in, in my positions are very clear. And, and I suppose it's tone. And I suppose it's, 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 it's a, such an easy formula. Just explain why you think what you think. It really is that easy. Pe- people appreciate that to an extensive degree. Um, especially so-called independents and moderates. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting things in there, like what makes somebody a moderate or independent, a lot of different types of people. I always, I always, um, I got asked this on Rogan earlier this week, and I always get asked this by people, mostly people outside of politics. And it's like, well, why, why can't we, when are we going to just, where's the center? You know, where is it? And I'm like, well, there isn't really a center. It's a knife edge. And, and we're okay with that. You should be okay with that. some things can be negotiated, but some things are eternal battles because we have completely different dispositions in the role of governments, why it even exists, and how we should solve problems. And, and you know it, it, it's we should be comfortable with that. I think what we should we should demand from our politicians is better explanations for why and in a more substantive policy debate as to as to why we disagree and then and then let the public um, support kind of fall where it will. Um, that would, that would be nice to have. Do you want to move on to some of the, um, I don't know how much time you have. I'm actually a little bit flexible with time, but, but, um, let's maybe we move to the woke fascism discussion of, uh, everything going on this, uh, this past week. And, um, I've started to label it as woke fascism. I'm not sure which label I like better. Let's, let's pull it with you, Jonah woke fascism (laughs) or progressive fascism. Um, Either, woke fascism maybe rolls off the tongue a little bit better, but I think progressive fascism is perhaps more accurate. But the point is, is, you know, I look up this definition of fascism and I've read your book, liberal fascism. And I know you're not, It, it should people, you're not saying that current liberals are fascists. You're just making the argument that a history of fascism seems to have a lot more in common with left-wing philosophy than it does right-wing philosophy, at least in the American sense. And um, and I'm kind of sick of getting labeled as a as an American right-winger with well, if you go too far as a right winger, you're a fascist. Like that's that's so not true. It might be true in Europe, but it's just not true here. If you take my philosophy to its greatest extent, to its greatest extreme, you kind of end up with no government. <laughs> you right. end up with, you know, in theory, you would end up with, with something closely closely resembling anarchy because you know we're so we're, if you take limited government to its extreme. So it's just such a it's just such a lie. Um, but what I do see is is when you when the left is, is conscripting institutions into their side and asking them to do their bidding and basically tarring and feathering via cancel culture, anybody who disagrees with them, this appears to me to look like fascism. You know, we see anti-fascists running the streets in their black clad gear, engaging in fascist tactics. It, it appears to me to look like fascism. Um, and it, it, it's, it's cultural. It's physical. It's physical. Um, it's all of the above. and um it, it's concerning. It, plus, it's based on a lie in the, in the in the in the case of these uh, Georgia election reforms and Texas election reforms. so I, I think this is the point where they really got out over their skis because there's really there's no gray area here when you really look at the uh, facts. and I, and I think they've really yeah. embarrassed themselves on this one
1: i um, so I have complicated views on all of this, in part because, um, yes I've or no, Jonah. I have been
0: working on an
1: essay, yes for, a no, f- <laughs> <laughs> an essay for a long time about what, what like. I <laughs> I've been working on an essay for a long time about what I what I stand by in liberal fascism and what I don't. And um I still stand by a lot of it. I stand by the first four or five chapters pretty much entirely. I mean, you know, this footnote here, or this paragraph there, are you know, those kinds of quibbles are fine, but um I got to say I I'm with you about the lie about American traditional conservatism that you can't get from extending sort of Reaganism to fascism uh, without stealing some intellectual bases. I have to say that the events of January 6th, the way Donald Trump emphasized nationalism over patriotism, the way he had lots of blood and soil rhetoric, um, the way he essentially encouraged mob violence on, and on the insurrection that looks a lot like generic fascism to me too. And I, as a matter of my own intellectual honesty, I have, have to admit it. And we can talk about that if you like, or we can just leave it there like a, a, you know, something to be continued later. That's fine. In terms of like the corporation stuff and the, 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 the way that the left is behaving under, you know, what you call woke fascism. um, It does bear a lot of anatomical features that are similar to, to, to the economic and uh, the, the sort of economic and governing doctrine of, of both Italian fashion fascism and German Nazism. And one of the things a lot of people don't like to hear is that there's actually an interesting scholarly debate about whether or not Nazism was even fascist, but that's, it, we use the term to describe both. So that's fine. And the core idea behind both of them was corporatism. Now the left likes to use corporatism to say rule by big corporations, but that's not what it actually means. It comes out of Italian, uh, uh, doctrine in the 19th century, and it's basically this idea that all the major players in society, trade unions, universities, the church, um, uh, businesses, you know, syndicates, guilds, government, they all should sit around the table, and they're the stakeholders, and they should make the decisions for everybody, and they should all agree. And the Germans had this word, which they borrowed from, from electrical engineering called Gleichschaltung, which means coordination, and it was this idea that all the oars in every aspect of society have to pull in the same direction, right? So you could be a nominally independent institution, a fraternity, you could keep your independence, but the rule was the institution had to subscribe to the prevailing Nazi orthodoxy and ideology. And mm-hmm. wokeism works very much like that. Is that the yeah. the institutions that? swim against the grain of the sort of social justice mantra. That's what gets them labeled fascist, right? Because fascist in that sense doesn't mean storming Poland or anything, right? It means, um, it means, yeah, it means disagreeing. It means dissent. And that's why I've always said that the single most fascistic thing that is said regularly in American life is if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem which is this idea Silence that there's no violence. safe harbor, right? You can't you can't disagree, you can't just you you'll be made to care, you have to subscribe to every issue on the agenda. And and that that is whether we want to call it fascist or not is very fascistic in its um in its psychology. It's very tribal um and I think it's very dangerous. I think that sort of tribalism, whether we call it fascist or not, is a problem in our culture generally, but it's definitely going on in in what we see with the woke crowd and i agree with you about the georgia thing uh it's not jim crow There are perfectly legitimate things you can criticize in that law but jim crow was a legal system that basically gave license to white people to kill black people to humiliate black people to deprive black people of achieving uh, of working in the economy it was primarily intended as an economic thing the political part about not voting was 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 bad but that was an attempt to keep black people from organizing and changing the economic part about it. They wanted to once once the slaves were freed, the plantation owners wanted to turn slaves into serfs or indentured servants, in effect, and not them let them use their labor power, not let them move. It was a profoundly evil system. Shortening the number of days for absentee ballots uh to be filed is not that. And it's, you know, and it drives me crazy because. So much of the debate now is whether or not people people think the question is, do you know what's in the Georgia bill? Um, that's important. But it's also important to know what Jim Crow was. And so yeah. many people don't know what Jim Crow was. And so that because they don't know what Jim Crow was, they feel free to call the Georgia law Jim Crow because they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Sorry, my the, rant's over.
0: No, it's, it's, it's extremely frustrating. And, and I think this is... Like, this is one of these moments where um, they're really losing this debate. And you can see that in the polling on on support for the Georgia law. You can see it in basic polling for voter ID. The Georgia law is really surrounding voter ID. You need a driver's. You need to put a a, a license number on the absentee ballot. This makes a lot of sense. I, I am not a fan of signature verification. I think this is nuts. How do you I mean? it is not reasonable to expect people to be able to properly analyze a signature. Um, My signature, maybe, because I'm so used to doing it, you can tell when it's my signature. But somebody can also copy it rather easily. Um, If 500, this is a stat that people always need to know, 550,000 ballots, mail-in ballots were thrown out during the 2020 presidential Democrat primary. Just that, this series of elections. It's a lot of ballots. And so why are they thrown out? Maybe some kind of clerical error sometimes, but but oftentimes it's one of two reasons. Either, either the election official caught legitimate fraud, somebody attempting to commit fraud, or the election official threw it out um, and threw out a, a valid person's ballot because they just screwed up their signature. In either case, this is a really, really bad thing. Um, it's, it's, it, and it just goes to show how we probably shouldn't use this practice Um anyway, that I don't want to get down on that down that path. Let's keep it on um. But also we should clarify it doesn't have to
1: be your driver's license Um, number, right? Yeah, I mean uh, Yeah. It can also be like the last four digits of your social security number or or voter ID number. I mean, yeah, there are other things other than a driver's license. I I think it's important to point out because this is one of the things that drives me crazy is people say, Well, not everybody has a driver's license. Um, not everybody has a voter ID card. A lot cheaper to just get everybody a voter ID card. Just send everybody a voter. Solve the problem.
0: If there's really a problem and there's not see, they're lying about it, but, but let's say that there is, you're going to get Republicans on board real quick to say, Oh my God, there's people without, there's that many people without IDs. There's entire communities without IDs. Oh my God. I I think that would be a national emergency, frankly, considering how badly you need an ID to do basic things in this world. Um, yeah. I mean, how do you get
1: a lease? How do you get a credit card? How do you get a car loan? It is, it is, it would be a scandal if there were millions of poor people who had no identification in this country. And I would, let's throw that in the infrastructure bill, get people their IDs so they can participate in the modern economy, you know?
0: Right. It's um, yeah. I I think, I think they generally lose this one. Um, But yeah, it's these fascist tactics are concerning. I wonder what, what do you think the incentive structures are in the, in the corporations themselves? Um, Is it, is it a, is it a knee-jerk reaction to mitigate risk? Like, why would why would they jump on this head first? Or are there are there truly progressive ideologues sitting on the boards um, as members of you know acting as CEOs? Is it a mix of both? Are they just deeply afraid of those one thousand mean tweets that they might get? I mean, like, I, I you know that means nothing to me, um, but it might scare them a lot. You know, what 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 do, what do you think drives this?
1: Yeah, so one of my one of my frustrations with this argument is uh, that's going on out there. Not not with your question, but is the way that some of this stuff surprises people as much as it does. Because this has been a problem for a very long time. Right, Milton Friedman used to complain about this problem about how corporations wouldn't protect, you know, wouldn't would, wouldn't wouldn't uh, stand up for their own self interest. Um, and uh, one of my favorite stories, you may not know this. So there's a great book called "The Suicidal Corporation," where this guy talks about how Ford was getting all this grief because of Nader and all that kind of stuff, um, and uh, decided it needed a much more aggressive government operations unit to uh, to fix its image and 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 fix its Washington problems. And this guy goes to work for it. He leaves like the Wall Street Journal. He thinks he's going to be fighting for capitalism in the American way. And instead of like a, an aggressive pushback campaign, Ford motor company decide, I think it's 99% sure it's Ford decides, no, no, that's not the way we're going to go. Instead, we'll buy goodwill by funding Washington week in review on PBS. And they thought that this was the way they were going to like fend off the regulatory state, whatever. The Fortune 500 companies have been funding their enemies for so long that I think it comes as second nature, whether it's the Sierra Club and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think in this context, a lot of it has to do partly because of um, a lot of CEOs defer to both HR types and to social media types because they don't understand that stuff directly themselves. And the advice they get from those directions is pretty progressive but also a lot of these companies you know they care about 18 to 34 year olds a hell of a lot more than they care about 48 to 70 year olds and um they think that there is this major incentive of holding on to sort of brand loyalty with young people if they're on their side of various social justice causes and, uh, I think sometimes they may be right, which is an argument for why Republicans need to get better at how to talk about these things that appeal to 18 to 34 year olds. Um, but I think also it's a lot of it is, um, it's deference to the bubble sort of group think of a certain kind of expert that comes out of Ivy league schools that, mm-hmm. um, that, 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 you know, the people they trust are the people from their own sort of social milieu. They've been filtered out by the meritocracy as a certain type. Um, and, and businesses as a, just a general proposition, they take the path of least resistance because they're about shareholder value and, and, and CEOs don't want to get, uh, you know, negative attention is very bad for their bonus structure. So I mean, I think there are a bunch of different reasons involved in it. Um, but it's very frustrating. And I think, and I think Major League Baseball has made a, a, a legitimately big mistake here. I don't know about Coca Cola and the rest. I don't know what kind of price they'll pay. But also, part of it comes from the fact that of the sort of the the sort of social bubble that a lot of these guys yeah. come from, in terms of the C suite crowd, or they come from the yeah, you know, the sort of meritocracy, Ivy League. They're used to farming out certain tough questions to mckinsey type experts and um yeah and one of the problems you get with that you know people people don't understand that when you hire a lot of these kinds of consultants in the private sector it's not to necessarily to get the best option get the best decision or the best course of action it is to have an excuse if things go bad where you get to say hey we hired mckinsey you know i mean like like we followed the mm-hmm. best advice and that's why we did it and i think in that sort of HR, social media, modern communications world, there's an enormous amount of groupthink where those people are much more tied into what reporters at the New York Times and the Washington Post and MSNBC think than what actual consumers or people close to the ground think.
0: That, uh, that's probably, that I hadn't really said before and thought about before. And I think that's probably extremely accurate. Um, you know, Mackenzie. For instance, uh, certainly hires almost exclusively out of HBS. And um, and uh, there's certainly groupthink at Harvard Business School. Um, and yeah, so when, when they're thinking of what consumers want and, and they and, and they and they believe and I bet if you ask them that they don't even think that they're thinking in partisan terms, but they are because they live in a bubble. And um, it, it was so easy for me to, and it's so interesting for me to debate somebody at, at grad school at, at Harvard because they've never heard conservative philosophy before. They've right. never heard they now they they build straw man arguments out of conservative ideas, and so they are like, "This is what you guys think." I'll be like, "That's not. It's literally not what we think." <laughs> I mean, or and it's certainly, or if it's the policy, it's like, "That's not why we think this policy is here." you you've, they they attach these very strange motivations. Um, to what we believe, a good example is this, I mean, I remember this professor trying to sell me on the idea of a carbon dividend, and I'm like, and they're like, see, it's a conservative idea because the government doesn't actually make money off of this carbon tax revenue, and that's what you guys like, right? And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, you don't understand us at all. That's not that's not any because you're you're basically saying you want to tax people, you want to send it through a bureaucracy, and then send out checks back to people. That's not conservative that's 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 highly inefficient and and also i'm not sure it gets the outcome that you're even looking for but that's a separate conversation about energy policy and so they think these things and and i love watching like like a real liberal a real liberal who's who's just there to talk um which i've distinguished from a progressive who is who is there to bully you into some kind of conformity via fascistic tactics different but a real liberal their eyes light up something they're like why never heard that before and i'm like really You're this politically involved and you've never heard that explanation before. You truly live in a bubble. And we're we're at a huge advantage as conservatives because it is easy to understand the left. It's really not that hard. Um, You know, it's go to their institutions. You're 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 not going to be that surprised, frankly. Um, They they're the, the, the belief is very strong there that you can that you can really structure the perfect policy on a policy memo. And, um, and it will just work if you just get it to give them enough power that, that, that philosophy has not changed. Um, even if it's well-intentioned, it certainly hasn't changed. And, but they have no idea what we think. Um, and, well, and that, I, that certainly carries over in the corporate side. I,
1: I think that's, I mean, I think there's a lot of truth in your. I, you know, one of the ways I often talk about it is, um, uh, you know, there's a reason why This is how I began the introduction to a book about young conservative writers that I edited years ago. There's a reason why blacks, gays, Jews, and Canadians dominate stand-up comedy. And, And one of the reasons why is that they're all minority cultures that are sort of slightly outside the fishbowl of the mainstream culture. So they know their own culture, but they also know the mainstream culture. And like Canadians, you know, they're just all looking down at us, absorbing our TV and they're a little alienated (laughs) from it. And that's a good source for comedy. Um, But the same thing is true about a lot of, about conservatives is that particularly college educated conservatives, if you go to any halfway decent college in this country, and I don't mean decent, like you can't get a good education, at community college, sometimes I think you get a better education. I mean, halfway elite, you know, selective school. If you go to any of them and you're a conservative and you come out a conservative without being some sort of lunkhead, you are not only going to be better at articulating conservative positions, you're going to be better at articulating liberal positions because your professors are liberal, your fellow students are liberal, you're going to argue with them, you're going to internalize it, your arguments are going to get better as a result. You know, the best learning comes from sort of the Socratic thing, uh, you know, the, the, fish that swim upstream are strong fish that go with the flow are dead. And, um, and so long as you don't come out a jerk, which I think a, one of the problems we have with a lot of the sort of right wing campus stuff these days is they're teaching kids to be jerks because it's politically incorrect to be a jerk rather than, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, yeah. be, be provocative, but be provocative for a good reason, you know? And, um, but, and I think there are some studies about this, you know, in, in science, there's a thing called a Turing test and, it's how you could tell if a computer has achieved artif you know, like human intelligence is if you were having a dialogue with it, you couldn't tell it was a computer. They do these tests, these ideological Turing tests, and conservatives generally, my understanding, score much better than liberals about understanding and articulating what the other side actually thinks. Yes. Liberals have seen that too. Are, yeah, the liberals are taught that what conservatives believe is this straw man stuff, that they're evil, that they hate puppies, whatever. And conservatives, because they actually have to live in, and I think this is changing a little bit, but they, you know, up until the last ten years or so, conservatives, particularly college-educated conservatives, they experience living in majority liberal institutions, and so they just understand it better.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's true on a psychological basis too. I mean, Jonathan Haidt's work. Um, really went into detail on that on, on the kind of the moral psychology aspects of right. conservatism and liberalism and uh, is that what you're referencing or is that That's some is, of it yeah, yeah 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 and so you know it's it's a pretty overwhelming evidence i mean th- these aren't like small sample sizes these are hundreds of thousands of data points so um and then in my in, and then in practice you, you certainly see it play out that way as well um maybe the last thing what, what did i wanted to ask you about an um, uh, article you wrote on. Um, on secretary blinken's performance with the chinese um and uh what was interesting about it was the the conversation about how we lost patriotism and um conservatives often accuse the left of doing this of basically going on apology tours and um this seems to be yet another example of that uh and it's and it's frustrating um but maybe on the, but, but I I bet you would have some criticisms for the right also on, on a sense of patriotism and maybe, and so maybe, maybe talk through that. Um, and, sure. and I mean, expand upon that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, for just explaining what this is reference to Blinken is secretary of state, he had this meeting, high level first meeting with the Chinese in Alaska. First one since Biden was elected. And the Chinese were the real jerks and the real bad actors in this story, but they broke protocol and denounced the United States of America when the United States said, hey, we're planning in these talks to talk about what you're doing with the Uyghurs, what you're doing with Hong Kong, blah, 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 blah. And the Chinese went on this harangue, denouncing the United States of America as having no right to criticize China, given all of the evils that are, you know, and problems with american democracy and america's record on race and all this kind of stuff and blinken's response there are two ways of thinking about it either he was unable or unwilling to give a full-throated defense of america instead what he said was look no one here denies that we have problems but we talk about them openly we we confront them directly yada 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 all true and it's a necessary thing to say But it's not a sufficient thing to say in the sense that, um, you know, look, if I if I if I accuse you on this podcast of being a uh, a shoplifting pedophile, you know, uh, three state killing spree, serial killer. And your response is, well, Jonah, I never said I was perfect. Um, (laughs) That's not a denial. Right, that's right. something else. And what and and so, uh, I think Blinken has been pretty good so far. I I, I don't mean this as like some like, like he's some pinko commie who hates America or anything like that. People tell me he you know he's 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 a better Democratic Secretary of State than a lot of the other options. And so and I and he should be congratulated for confronting China as much as he has. That said, the idea that America look America has its problems, but the idea that America. Is has no right to judge China or what the Chinese Communist Party is doing, is so incandescently stupid. I mean, China right now is committing cultural genocide, it is committing literal genocide. There are reports of forced rapes and sterilizations. They have Jim Crow in their country. You know, we're talking about Georgia having Jim Crow, they literally have Jim Crow. With your, if you're not part of, the right ethnic group. You cannot get it. The paper's required to travel internally. You can't get into certain schools. You can't get certain jobs. They are um, committing ethnic cleansing in Tibet. Uh, the idea that somehow we don't have the standing to criticize that is insane. And so what concerns me, uh, concern me about that is that I suspect Blinken knows that. But for reasons that we, I just don't know, he felt like That's not the full-throated answer he could give. And maybe that has to do with our diplomacy, diplomatic agenda with China. I don't know. Maybe that has to do with global diplomacy. I don't know. Or maybe it has to do with the fact that huge swaths of the Democratic base do think we have no right to judge China, do think that we have, you know, that racism has never been worse, which is insane. Um, Do think that, you know, white supremacy defines America and that the real founding was 1619. And he didn't think he could say, though, he, he didn't think he could defend America the way it deserves to be defended without pissing off his own base. I don't know that that's the case, but it worries me that it might be a possibility. That was my take on it.
0: Yeah. And the question you posed is, you know, was he unprepared or unwilling? And, and maybe a mix of both. But I doubt that he's unprepared because it's not that stupid. Um, and, and you, And this is a very common refrain from the Chinese. They say this kind of thing all the time. So it should be, it should be fully expected that when we criticize their human rights abuses that they'll criticize, well, you guys had slavery and Jim Crow, they say it all the time. Um, and it's pretty obvious what the response should be. I mean, you, you, you basically said it. It's like, it's like, yeah, well, you know, we fought wars to get rid of that. You know, we, we fight to live up to our ideals. What the hell are you doing? Don't judge us. Um, you know, and just slam it right back in their face. Um, You know we we are not the same, and we will not even let you pretend that we won't even we won't even we won't even pretend that notion is true. And he didn't do that at all. It's like well you know yeah it's like mom nobody's perfect. Uh, That's (laughs) basically that is basically the response. And you know I I think it was probably pre-planned, and I think it's exactly the and I think it I think it is does originate from this problem of of basic patriotism. Um, and you know I have like a list of uh conservative guide to the culture wars. And um, and and number one starts out with that. America is a is a good place worthy of our love and affection and patriotism. It's a it's a very simple statement and it's a shame that it even has to be a statement these days. I've heard um, from college professors and elite northeastern schools and they'll and they'll uh, ask their class who's proud of their country and all the international students raise their hands. Doesn't matter where they're from. They're almost always proud of their country, even if they're from like a civil war torn country. There's still like a, a deep sense of patriotism that occurs. But the but but it's a fad, and it would be it would be it would be expected. And it's certainly how it how it turns out that that American students simply don't raise their hand mm-hmm. because it's it's part of the bandwagon. It's part of this new cultural fad to just denounce your own country um and it's, it's it's extremely problematic there's this sort of idea on the left and i you know hear it from my liberal friends often it's like, i just love my country so much that's why i advocate for change because i love it it's like yeah <laughs> tell your tell your spouse that <laughs> i love you so much i mean that's why i need to fundamentally transform the, your personality right. uh you know th- that's that's not love uh, sorry it it, it also, and also and it would be fine if it was objective um you know but it but it's just it's not objective either um, it, it really falls out the falls outside the I think the standards of, of of what would be deemed uh, a, a rational assessment of what is good in a country. I, I think they're very much outside of that, and I think there's political op- reasoning for that because you have to convince people that they're in crisis constantly, that they're in constant need of change, because that's the only way that you can justify some of the most radical agenda items that you're pushing. Because you know right. why. Why would you need these drastic changes unless things were so bad already? That, I, so I think there's there's a, a, a psychological manipulation happening there as well with the voter base and people fall for it. Um, it what's interesting, too, I mean, because you look at polling and you ask people about their own lives and, you know, this is this, is, you know, Donald Trump should have won just based on these polls alone. My life is significantly better than before. So many people were saying that a vast majority of Americans, but they also think that everybody else is doing very, very bad. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting psychological phenomenon. It's um, it's and, and I don't know how to fix it, but and, and that's and I think it's a direct result of the left's propaganda. You might be doing fine, but trust us. There are people in misery. You know, children are hungry. People are dying from air pollution. They Like they throw out the statistic, one in five people are dying from air pollution. This is a lie. This is yeah. a total lie. It's based on global data. And it's it, it, it's it's basically almost entirely because people are burning dung and wood inside their homes in small villages around the world. And that's the equivalent of smoking 40 packs a day. You know right. why they're doing that? Because they don't have fossil fuels. <laughs> like that's, right. You know, so it's just it's just such a there's so many lies being told. And I think it and that's these lies accumulate in this extremely embarrassing moment with the Chinese where we can't defend the wonders of America. And it's um it, it, it's the first it's the it's the there's a reason it's number one on the culture wars. I think it's important.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm with you on on a lot of that. I mean, this gets to my thing about how. Seems to me both parties, whichever party could convince the majority of Americans that they're just not crazy, wins. <laughs> and yeah. the problem is is that both parties at the at the macro level seem really eager to be minority parties to me. And <laughs> um uh and just just don't be like a great example of this to talk sort of tie all this together about the bubble and all that kind of stuff. There was this I, I I really should commit the numbers to memory. I bring it up so often. You know, there was this survey from a progressive polling firm that looked into um what the preferred label is for Hispanic Americans that they use about themselves. And Latinx came in at like two or three or four percent, something like that. A huge yeah. chunk of people had never heard of it yeah. and It turns out that like, and you probably know this better coming from Texas than I do, but like a lot of Hispanics want to be known as Mexican Americans or just Americans or Cuban Americans or whatever. But like, like Latinx is like, what the hell is that? Right. But in the bubble that say Elizabeth Warren lives in where she probably knows, and I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but she probably knows more transgender people, right. than. uh, uh. I'll just be generous than the average person. Um, The way she talked about like transgenderism, Latinx people, all these kinds of things, she made it sound like someone had convinced her that she was doing outreach to a large swath of Americans. (laughs) You know, when in reality, she's doing micro-targeting of a handful of hyper-educated people who are in these sort of diversity consultant universe of professions who are telling her this is how you do outreach to ethnic groups. And then when you look at like the actual polling of Hispanics, often Hispanics come in, you know, the the immigration is sometimes second, third, fourth on their list of priorities. But for Democrats who live in this kind of bubble, they assume that the way you reach all Hispanics is talking about immigration, even though, first of all, like Puerto Ricans are already citizens. Like, why would they think that Immigration mm-hmm. is like the most pressing issue for them. Yeah. And I think that you get this kind of situation where it's sort of like uh, Plato's cave. You only see the shadows on the wall up front of you and they give you a really distorted view of what America is like. And if I had one piece of advice for like Republicans about all this, is stop talking about real America as if it's defined by a pickup truck in, in a, in a Ford commercial. I like that America all in for that America. I have members of my family in that America. But most Americans actually live in cities and major metro areas, right? And um, there are enormous number of low-hanging fruit problems in these Democrat-controlled cities out there about zoning and how to start a small business that would appeal to immigrants, that would appeal to descendants of immigrants, that would appeal to people on bread-and-butter Republican issues about low taxes and low regulation and all that kind of stuff. And when the message is, If you're not listening to a certain kind of country music, you're not in real America. It means that is so self defeating for a party if it wants to be a majority party, because the majority of Americans don't live those lifestyles. Don't that doesn't speak to them. And I wish the GOP could figure out a way to go back into cities and be competitive in them, because that's where the if you want to be a majority party in this country, that's where you got to go. What do you think about all that? Yeah, come from. You're coming. From, you're basically the suburbs of Houston, right? I mean, it's not yeah central Houston, but it's inner ring. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it's an interesting point. Like, yeah, like how, how do you? Um, the question is, yeah, how do you present yourself culturally speaking? Um, that is appealing to the broadest, the broadest masses. And, and I think the answer to that might be you know, have a diverse set of people presenting themselves, because one mm-hmm. person can't do it all, right? Um, I think I do an okay job. I try. Uh, my, my natural state is jeans, boots, and like a camouflage hat. Mm -hmm. Now it is, that's, that's somewhat, that's a mix of my Texas background and military background. That's a very military way to be as well. I dress like a military guy. Um, and I'll never stop. It's just, it's just who I am. Um, you know, I worked on a ranch growing up so I can kind of fill that role too but yeah does it apply to like your but i can also i i went to harvard so i can also i can have a latte with you know (laughs) and and i and in my drink at starbucks it it may or may not be like a triple espresso tall almond milk mocha okay i can do that i can i can play that role because you know and it's authentic the point is just be authentic and i think you'll be fine
1: um, yeah, I didn't mean but, yeah. any of that as a criticism of you. I just no, I know. Like, I know. I'm
0: just I'm just using. It but there's a example. branding
1: problem that the GOP has, you know. That yeah, that-
0: yeah, yeah. Like wave the American, like 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 stab you with the American flag, and yeah, <laughs> no, it, it it got a little excessive um, recently, to to say the least. And like it it it, it's, it is it's ext- it's extremely prevalent. For instance, and you know, because we're going to have this debate now. It's the you know because Joe Biden's putting all, all, out all these gun um, gun control executive orders, and so what's going to happen? We're going to we're going to our Second Amendment community may and ho- hopefully get smart about this, but I but I'm not so sure that'll be the case. They will fight it in the most unpersuasive way possible and and talk about the tyranny of government and, and, and strap up with that, uh, you know, that Ops Corps helmet and that kit that they bought online, but they've never worn it in combat, never worn it overseas. So you look ridiculous. You're dressing up like your favorite Call of Duty character. You're scaring the hell. Out of suburban housewives and and you're pretending like you're fighting for your rights, you're not. You're, 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 you're setting us backward in this argument. And we've gotten a little smarter about this. I mean, I'm I'm friends with um you know, the the spokesperson for Gun Owners of America, Antonio Kaffo. And she's that's the right spokesperson. A young black mm-hmm. woman with a young child who says, Look, I need to equalize myself against an attacker. That's the right argument. And you know what? You can't tell me what kind of gun I'm gonna use. And if you're going to try to restrict guns, you better be able to make a much better argument for why you're restricting types of guns or magazine capacities. How on earth does that result in less crime and gun deaths? It doesn't. Nobody would and you can't argue that. So just stop it. That's the right argument. And that's the right that's the right presentation as well. So I mean it's in yeah, but but instead it becomes this sort of like 1776 kind of like, you know, flag-waving yeah and um it's fun like it appeals to me um but it doesn't appeal to the the people you're trying to persuade um i think we have less of a problem than the democrats i i think that latinx problem is much more severe than some of the problems that we put forth because in the end that flag-waving patriotism still is fairly inclusive um Mm -hmm. you know and we're and we're very open about that and i think i think we just need to lean into the lean into these conversations a little bit more than we have. Donald Trump really did that. I'll give him credit for it. Um, and he did see some benefit from it in the black votes and Latino mm-hmm. votes. And because, look, Latinos, one, they hate illegal immigration, because if they are immigrants, um, if they're not multi-generation Latinos, they're and, and therefore they basically call themselves Americans um then then they then they immigrated here legally and they're citizens and they speak english and they don't need to be pandered to um and, and that's because that's how you end up with ridiculous jill biden moments the C say and like which which looks like it was a scene from veep which was maybe one of my favorite things of the year 2021 so far um all we have to do is tell these committees look these are our principles this is why we think they'll make your life better we're not here to promise you things we're not here to lie to you and we're certainly not going to pander to you or tell you that you're a victim how do you like that I think that's a pretty good message, frankly, and it's an extremely honest one. And I think people appreciate that. They, I, I think I think people are are starting to react to this to this left wing notion that you should you should be divided according to your race or gender or preferred gender or whatever it is. I I, I think this is driving people a little bit crazy because it is very anti American. Um, and so you know, just some honesty from our side. Um, I'm, I'm probably. Frankly, it goes a long way, and 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 if the tone is right, I don't think the message needs to change all that much. I just think uh, often times it's just the tone. It goes it goes a really long way, um, and maybe and again I see that because I I'm in inner city. I mean I'm right now I'm in I'm inside the loop in Houston. That's my district. So it goes all the mm-hmm. way down to Rice University. I've got these. You know, I've got all sorts of different types of um, constituents and it, and it can get somewhat rural out in the northeast. And so, you know, I have to appeal to everybody. And, and, and I think there's I think there's ways to do that. I, I don't know that we're that far off. I think we're getting better. I'm optimistic is maybe what I'm trying to say. I, I think we have more reason to be optimistic now than maybe we did a while ago. Um despite some of the challenges we've had over the last few months. Um, Yeah. I
1: mean, that's probably a subject for a whole other podcast. I am less optimistic because of, uh, you know, from where I sit outside of a lot of this stuff and maybe I'm too much in a bubble and too, too concerned with my intra-conservative, you know, eggheadery and what I see happening at places like the Claremont Institute and other places. Um, And what I see sort of with some of my colleagues at Fox about, sort of embracing a, a kind of identity politics for white people that I find very disturbing, but I hope you're right. And, and just to bring it first circle, because I actually, I do have to go on. I have another call. I have a thing I have to get to, but um, the point you were making, you know, where you're describing your district as being diverse and having everything from the city to sort of semi-rural and all that. The first part of our conversation, we were talking about the instructed delegate versus the trustee vision of leadership. And I would argue, particularly given how big congressional districts have gotten vis-a-vis where the founders wanted them to be, and I'm in favor of expanding the House of Representatives, that if you have a diverse district, you almost have to be the trustee kind of leader um, because you're going to have people in your district on different sides of the issue And sometimes one group is going to be right. And sometimes the other group is going to be right. And you have to make that call about who's right. Or maybe both of them are wrong. I mean, I would, I to tell you, I'm not a fan of populism. I would, I would, I I don't give money to politicians, but like, I would be very tempted to take out my checkbook. If I saw a politician on the left or the right speaking to a cheering crowd that was chanting at them and saying, you're great and you're awesome. And then it chanted some sort of slogan of advice about something. And the politician responded, I'll take your opinion under advisement (laughs) Um, because um, I I just think that that's what we we need more statesmanship um, and less sort of my congressman or my my politician is a remote control for my grievances um, kind of leadership. And I I think you get that and um, and I appreciate it, but we need a lot more of it, it seems to me.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think trustee is the preferred uh, option for sure. Somebody who exhibits their own judgment. Just explain why you're doing it. Obviously, you follow. You know, you run on a certain set of principles, and so you have an obligation to abide by those sets of principles. I, I label conservatism as look. It, yes, we end up on certain policy platforms, but conservatism is much more about process. It is much more about a set of limiting principles that 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 from which you derive a framework for solving problems. That's conservatism. We need to remember that, and so that allows us some wiggle room, but it's anchored. It's anchored, mm-hmm. and that buoy moves around a little bit. See, progressives have no such anchor. That's I think that's the danger of progressivism. Doesn't mean we don't listen to them. Sometimes they point out things like, "Hey, you know what? I think it's good for everybody to have health care." That's not a crazy thing to point out. I'm not going to like. I'm not going to say, "Oh, you, you commies." No, but but let us solve it because why we'll solve it within a, within a set of limiting principles that is better. Um, I don't think the House of Representatives should be bigger. I think it's too big. I, I can't imagine more people up there. So you just keep those ideas to yourself, buddy. <laughs>
1: that's, that's too much All right, to be continued too on much. that. Uh, Dan, this right. was fun. Yeah, um, I'm sure we have a lot of things we could circle back and talk about. But this was this was great to do. Thanks for coming on, and thanks for having me on. Right? Because this, hey. this is some double headed thing.
0: Whatever. Yeah, we're both. Hey, man. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'm glad. we should, we should do it more. Appreciate it, Jonah.
1: Absolutely. All right. So uh, that was interesting. I, I thought it was a good and interesting conversation. Um, I think, you know, I, I know people who love Dan Crenshaw and I know people who are critical of Dan Crenshaw. I um, remain a fan of the guy. I think his heart is in the right place. I think he was pretty honest about how part of the job of just getting elected and being in Congress requires... To play some of that social media game, and and I think he's actually pretty good at it. Um, and uh, and I think some of the critics, some of his critics, only see that part and don't realize that he's actually trying to do the job as best that he can. And, um, I highly recommend people who um, don't know much about the guy to go look at that, you know, his appearance in Saturday Night Live, which I thought was really well done. I just wish there was more of that kind of honest discussion inside the House of Representatives and outside of it on the stuff that I want to talk about, about the house. Um, you know, the way this started was he'd been listening to me. He, li- he is like many members of Congress. He is a listener of the Remnant podcast. Um, he had heard me talking about how Congress was a problem and, 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 uh, you know, all my usual arguments about it. And he thought it was interesting and wanted to sort of discuss it more. And that's, that was the impetus of him coming on. And then it sort of went in various different directions. And, um, uh, I don't think I've changed my mind on any of my core positions in all this, but I thought it was interesting to hear. Um, I kind of, I'm increasingly, so years ago I was listening to car talk, you know, the NPR show, it's not on anymore. I mean, I I guess they have reruns in some places, but, um, I remember at one point someone called in and talked about how, um, they had some ancient car that was still running and whether or not they should have the engine rebuilt or cleaned or something like that. And I remember one of the car talk guys talking about how, you know, maybe that's not a good idea because it could be all the accumulated gunk and filth and, and corrosion and buildup of schmutz. Uh, that is actually holding the engine together. And if you get rid of that, then the whole thing will just sort of fall apart. And, um, I've used that years ago. I used that as a metaphor for, for sort of about like, you know, Western civilization and the sort of weird sort of informal, uh, forms of, of social capital and tradition and custom and hidden law that actually make civilization work. And as I've been reading more, cause I'm so cool about Congress, um, There's a case to be made, uh, which I referenced a little bit in Jonathan Rausch's argument that the 1970s reformers of Congress were convinced that they had to sanitize Congress of all the schmutz and gunk and goo, um, and build it on sort of clean, shiny chrome mechanisms of, 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 reform. And the problem was, was that a lot of the schmutz and the gunk was the stuff that made the institution work. And when you look at it from the outside, you're like, oh my gosh, that's so corrupt. But when you look at it from the inside, it was actually the sinew of the institution. And I think that, um, obviously bribery and real corruption has got to go and we should not tolerate it. But, but beyond that uh, sort of an economy of trading favors and and working out deals and all that kind of stuff may look corrupt, but that's actually, you know, that's why we have the expression, you know, which I think originally comes from Bismarck about not liking to watch the sausage get made. That's how it gets made. So anyway, um, uh, and on the only other point I just sort of want to put a pin in is about the fascism talk. I, my long time listeners know that, um, I have been trying to write this stupid thing. I just, you know, it's, life is busy um sort of revisiting where i stand on liberal fascism and and all of that and as as i at least hinted i didn't want to get into a big thing with with Crenshaw about it um, um i do think that you know i used to i used to have exactly Dan's position about how it was just slander and calumny to accuse uh mainstream uh modern american conservatives in the anglo-american tradition of fascism or fascist tendencies or crypto fascism or any of that kind of stuff. And I still think it is a slander against people like Dan, you know, people who like, if you push them to their ideological extremes would be hyper libertarian and limited government. Um, it's very difficult to come up with a libertarian notion of Nazism or fascism. Um, but I, I, I just wanted to get the marker out there that I don't think it is unreasonable anymore for some liberals looking at some aspects of sort of Trump era nationalism and republicanism, and say, gosh, that looks an awful lot like fascism to me. Um, and that breaks my heart. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the piece, which I'm still working on. I haven't looked at it in about a month, um, but I just wanted to explain where I was coming from all that. And beyond that, I want to thank Dan again for coming on and thank you for listening. And I will see you next time. But I forgot to get them to say, no, you won't, this is a podcast. So maybe they'll throw in a surprise. Maybe they'll throw in those, those wacky rapscallions who put this thing together. Maybe they'll find an old, no, you won't, this is a podcast and make people guess about who it was. Anyway, uh, maybe they won't. Regardless, I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. No, you won't, this is a podcast.